0: It's that time. It's time to get weird. Hey Dad. Weird and
1: wild. <laughs>
0: you just sound like the guy who was homeschooled.
1: Yes, and uh, every time he ventures out into public, he gets punched in the
0: face. This is a dark tale we're yes. weaving. Speaking of dark tales, um, we have uh, a guest with us again this week. We asked him to join us because we're doing a big top ten kind of podcast topic, and we wanted a third pair of
2: eyes. Welcome back, Sean Tucker. I'm so excited to be back. I I didn't realize we were allowed to turn off. I actually I've. St- been sitting here since last week. I just thought you guys went to the washroom. I wasn't. Anyways. That's why you have pizza boxes. Yeah. My clothing is made out of pizza boxes. Sean has actually
1: been living in Riley's basement this entire time. So it's it's actually just, we kind of had no choice. You were hitting pots and stuff like that when Riley would try to record. Mm -hmm. Well, do
0: you know what the most fascinating thing about that is? I don't have a basement. So this, folks, is a very prestigious occasion. Tonight, we are actually celebrating our 50th episode. Now, the numbering may be... No, we're not. Well, yeah, we are. No, it's our 49th episode. Well, it's actually the 50th if you go back and count doubles and stuff. You're very right, yeah. So I'm going to go and call this the 50th because this is a double episode anyway. It's got to be, so let's just call it the
1: 50th. The 50th episode bonanza, I think is what we'll call it. That sounds right.
0: Extravaganza? Bonanza extravaganza. Do you know Bonanza was my favorite after-school show when I was growing up in the United States. It was on at 3.30. Never cared for it. Not violent enough. Well, that was that era. It wasn't about violence. It was about negotiation.
1: Little House on the Prairie? I could do that one. That's the most saccharine show ever.
2: The The Ingle girls were cute. But Little House on the Prairie was that era of television show where they had one piece of music for the score and they would just slow it down or speed it up, depressed on depending on the mood. If it was sad, it was like... Di-na-na-na-na. And if they were happy, it was... It was the same... So- huh. yeah. The Brady Bunch was the same way. It was just the same piece of music and it was either fast or slow. The tempo huh. would change, that's it. And they would do like a humorous rendition of it. Yeah,
0: I never liked that show. I just never did. I couldn't take Cindy and her lisp.
2: My mother still watches it. It's still on. Like, Like, not. where do you watch that? One of those channels that, you know, there's so many channels now, you know, that shows like this. What is it? The 700 Club or whatever. And they have Mm. Little House in the Prairie. And she watches Little House in the Prairie and the Waltons back to back. And there's one episode I walked in one day and she's she's like, do you remember this one? And I'm with the cable company that if you click on the information, it tells you the original air date of the show. I clicked on it. It was May the 7th, 1976. She's like, do you remember this one? I'm like, no, no, Ma, I, I don't. Do you know, I actually
0: have in the back of my head an idea for a limited run podcast. Uh, farther up the line, uh, once we get more established, I thought it would be great to do... Did you ever read Hollywood Babylon? No. Either of you? It's a fabulous no. book about all the tragic stars who died really awfully in Hollywood. So it has Sounds like great. Oh, too. no, it's great. It's actually really great. And I would love to do with just a thing about really tragic actors like Robert Reed is one of those, the guy from yes. The Brady Bunch, because he hated that role and he was gay, closeted, and also had a really tragic life. Hmm. Yeah. and you know who else is great george Papard. because george Papard hated mr t and hated being on the a-team
1: well he was a very respected actor before that's why he's yeah. he's,
0: he's kind of like me that way he's that i'm that way about actors right because you and i have uh, had that thing where you said well don't talk about the rock because he's just a movie star but the fact that people like that succeed where really trained actors do not makes me unhappy
2: Riley, I have a question in that book, and I thought about this for a future episode, perhaps, but uh, do they talk a little bit about, because I know you love Mank, uh, and William Randolph Hearst, uh, the guy that died on his boat when Charlie Chaplin was on there? Do you know this story? I don't know. Okay, there's a movie about it. I think it's called The Cat's Meow. Maybe that's something we'll explore down the road, but there was uh, a bunch of movie stars on a boat for a nighttime cruise, kind of Natalie Wood type thing.
0: I'm sure it's in there fatty arbuckles in there everybody's in there
2: he got like shot in the head and then they were just like that oh, was an accident and it was totally covered up nobody really knows what happens lots of theories so maybe that's something for down the road the um
1: the, the little girl from small wonders the robot girl she shot up a mall mm-hmm. true are you serious yeah and she had a jet like a full-on jetpack, and that's you that's what stopped her rampage hmm it she went straight up and then all of a sudden shifted down and went headfirst into uh, a gap you're making that up did you make that up yes i made that fuck why do i listen i thought that sounded great it, wouldn't it be though if that had actually happened
0: not the rampage part because that's sad well no but it's funny when stars do it I've got a great story and I think I've already spilled the beans on this one so everybody out there knows we're going to take on the probably one of the most notorious murder cases ever in North America and that is of course the zodiac killer I have researched this for a couple of months and man oh man oh man there's so much written on this now a lot of people only know one perspective on this case because of the zodiac movie and that only gives you one perspective I'm going to try to give you a little bit more of a rounded look at the case and we're going to do a pretty deep dive into what happened because this one's fascinating for two reasons to me the first being it was one of the only cases involving puzzles that needed to be solved and the, you will call them either cryptograms or cryptographs were sent to mostly the um the san francisco herald uh, chronicle sorry san francisco chronicle but the other is that it's never been solved the killer was never found So, I'm not going to give any more of a Pareto than that. Let's just get into it. One warning to you both. I'm jumping around on this one a bit. We're not going to be super chronological because there's uh, sort of exits and passageways that we need to take on the journey as we go rather than come back and revisit them later. So, we're going to start our journey on December the 20th, 1968. All of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight takes place in California, which is convenient. A lot of the shit always happens in California. California is like serial killer ground zero. So at this time, um, we're in the vicinity of Vallejo, California. It's small community at the time we're talking about 1968. We're looking at about 5,000 residents. They're mostly middle class. So really nice place to live, enjoys a very low crime rate. On that day, 17-year-old David Faraday and 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen were out. Now these two had only met a few weeks earlier. They actually attended different high schools and the night in question, December 20th was their official date, which is really sweet. They went to a concert and after the concert they then traveled to a very well known location in the teenage community known as Lake Herman Road. And that had a reputation as a lover's lane. It was extremely popular with the high school crowd. I don't think Lover's
1: Lanes are a thing anymore. And they, they didn't exist I, even when I was a teenager. Uh-huh. Did they for you, Sean, in, in Belleville, Ontario?
2: No, not. No, uh, no, no. And no, I hated didn't.
0: There was nowhere good to go to make out. I think Lover's Lanes are a 50s and maybe 60s phenomenon. It's, well, it's the age of the car. Right, mm-hmm. So you'd go park and make out. And, that was, and I mean, the 50s and 60s, I think, is a great era of the car. It's when the car became such a dominant force in culture. Like when I was a
1: kid, you, you had to go behind the, the school. We used to go there too.
2: Behind the school? What kind of school did you go to?
1: A dark one at night. Okay. Yeah, Brookfield uh, uh, was a bit huge campus and have, you know, not to, to like put the kiss and stuff, you know. Grab a little titty? No.
0: Oh, Okay. You were a boring date. I I don't want to go into details. Lake Herman Road is a very remote location. There are no street lights at this this particular spot. They're sitting in a parked car. It's a two-tone Rambler. It's about 11 PM. A car pulls up next to them, and a dark figure emerges from the car. As he walks towards the car, he pulls out a 22 caliber gun, a handgun. He moves up, straight up to the car, makes a beeline for it, walks very purposely. David is shot in the head while he is sitting in the car and Betty Lou is gunned down as she's trying to run away from the vehicle screaming. When she's found actually she's lying 28 feet from the car and she has been shot five times in the back. One shot has also been fired through the right rear window of the Rambler. Now police arrive from two different departments the Vallejo department and Benicia. When they get to the scene, Betty is pronounced dead. But David is still alive. Right. It's a cold night and the only way that they can tell that David is still alive is because they can see his breath fogging in the night air. However, unfortunately, the wounds are too profound and he dies in the ambulance en route to the hospital. Now, the community of Vallejo is devastated. And the police forces in both Benicia and Vallejo are completely stumped because they can find no motivation for this insane crime. Mm -hmm. The police, having no motive, jumped to the conclusion that the murder is probably drug-related. And they really don't conduct much of a thorough investigation. Now, the reason they jump to the drug-related assumption is because we're in that era. It's 68. It's drugs, drugs, drugs immediately you look at a teenager and you think drugs drugs you know if, if jimmy starts to come home late he must be on drugs it's just that that is a very popular social thing at the time It's teenagers and drugs teenagers and drugs right i remember when i was growing up it was like that i can't tell you how many instructional films i had to watch in health class and in school about drugs i just remember nancy
1: reagan talking to us about that and then that commercial with the eggs and the frying pan
0: that still sticks with me to this day brilliant one of the best ad campaigns ever Mm -hmm. they have no suspects and so they believe the murders are just an unfortunate but an isolated event can i can i just ask
1: a question yeah absolutely the movie zodiac that's the that's the first thing you see right the first uh Crime that takes place in that movie? Is it that one?
2: Yeah, the murder that starts at the beginning is actually the second one that I think Riley's about to talk about with uh, Michael uh, because they were both in. Okay. The thing that's interesting about this, and I'm not going to jump on Riley because I know he's talking, is uh, the geography. I I have a theory that the geography has a lot to do with it. Super remote. Well, not only that, but just the fact that, you know, they were like in. Because uh, the way the, the United States is, it's not like. Uh, here we have the OPP and that sort of thing. You have different sheriffs, different police, mm-hmm. uh, you know, across county lines and that sort of thing. And he was very good at doing it in different towns and that sort of thing. But I don't want to jump on Riley's. Uh, I don't.
0: We'll get there. And
2: I think that was that was very purposeful on his behalf.
0: So Fourth of July, nineteen sixty-nine, a very big day in the U.S. Trust me, I've lived there. We're at Blue Rock Springs Park. This is also near the community of Vallejo that I mentioned earlier. And it's actually not far from the scene of the first crime. Now this is a very rural area. It's a popular destination on weekends. Families would come there for barbecues. They had in the 60s, I don't know if you remember this, but they would always have these brick barbecues, hibachi things you could just show up and with your own briquettes and throw them in and have a barbecue, sure. so those were yeah. there picnic tables, uh, and they would just come to enjoy the scenery. It was a very naturally beautiful area. At night, however, it was again a popular destination for the teenagers from Vallejo to Common Park and party and make out and do the things that teenagers do. At approximately midnight, give or take, a car pulls up near a parked car containing two people. They are 22-year-old Darlene Farrin and 19-year-old Michael Majo. It then drives away. A few minutes later, the vehicle returns and parks directly behind them. And a strange figure holding a bright flashlight approaches the couple again, walking very purposefully. Now these two, Majot and Farron had been dating for a while and they had discussed and ultimately planned to be married. Farron worked as a waitress in an all night restaurant. And that night she had been driving. She had picked up Majot at his home and they had driven to the park to be alone. When they first see the vehicle in the flashlight, they believe the stranger must be a police officer because the flashlight went with that. So they both immediately begin to retrieve their identifications because that's usually what happens at those places. They ask to see your ID and harass you a bit and then off they go. The stranger approaches the driver's side window and immediately fires five shots into the vehicle and then he calmly walks away. At that point, Michael moans in pain and horror. Hearing this, The killer turns, returns to the vehicle, and shoots both of them twice more. VAO police receive a call at 12.10 from a young woman. She is extremely agitated. She states that there are kids being shot at Blue Rock Springs. About an hour after the incident, at approximately 12.40, police, this is really important, receive a call from a phone booth, which ultimately turns out to be located a few blocks from the police station. The voice on the line, which is definitely male, states, I wish to report a double murder. If one of you will go a mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park, you will find the kids in a brown car. They have been shot by a nine millimeter Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. Now, I did that on purpose because The woman who received the call at police headquarters described his voice as very monotone. She said the words sounded very rehearsed. When he said goodbye, he didn't say it like a normal person would. He extended the words so they almost sounded like a sigh or a groan. And I've actually seen an interview with that operator and she actually reproduces it. She says it sounded like, goodbye. I think I figured it out. It was E.T. What did I say about how we're going to behave during this episode? E.T. Phone home. Okay. Authorities arrived on the scene shortly after receiving the first call from the young agitated woman. They arrived at the scene to find a brown 1963 Corvair. I've actually seen a picture of it with its headlights on. The radio is also on and playing soft music in the background Every police officer who arrived at the scene said it was the creepiest thing because the headlights are on in the car and it's playing this beautiful music in the background. The passenger door is open. They discover Michael Mageau is lying on the ground. Darlene Farron is still in the vehicle. She is slumped over the steering wheel and her breathing is shallow. She is still alive. However, only Mageau would survive the ordeal. He is able to describe the shooter. He's lucid enough to do this. He describes a young white male approximately 26 to 30 years of age he guesses he's about five foot eight a stocky build he places the uh, attackers weight at between 170 to 200 pounds he says he had light brown curly hair a broad face and walked purposefully but with a limp now Something I would note, in later years, Majot's recollections have become very inconsistent. I've watched a couple of interviews with him. He at times claims that the attacker had jet black hair, but in his original testimony, he was certain he had brown hair. Now he claims he was six feet tall and wore glasses, which he never claimed in his original testimony. He also claims that a vehicle had pursued them earlier in the evening, and this was never mentioned in his initial testimony or approximately 10 years after the attack. An interesting note, hospital staff and police are both baffled when they discover that Majot is wearing several pairs of pants, a sweater and a number of long sleeve shirts. And it's an extremely warm evening. We're in California. And the reason for this is very sweet. majo was very thin, and he wanted to look more physically robust while he was on the date with Farron. So he piled on the clothes so he would look like he had a better build. Hmm. I know, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you see him interviewed, and I'll mention this again later, he's not quite there cognitively. It's hard to figure out if he had extensive brain damage because they say he didn't. That's what I wanted to ask. But it looks like he might have had a little time with the bottle here and there. He has that kind of vibe. So that's all I have to say about that crime, the crime scene itself. So, Sean, is there anything you want to add? Because I'm going to move now to the letters.
2: No, uh, although I was just going to say that yeah i've seen interviews as well and i know exactly what you're talking about he he has almost like physical ticks now and i i don't know if that's like you said if that's due to obviously it was a very traumatic experience and when you listen to him talk about the fact that he was very in love with with her uh it's you know impacted his life and you can see that when when he describes it but yeah. his I, I did notice that as well, that the inconsistencies, he's all over the place, his attention span, and he's moving. It's almost like he wants to jump out of yes. his seat every time he talks. It's a, You really do feel for the guy. He looks like somebody
0: who's had
1: a tough life. Yeah. Has anyone asked him why he has changed his story?
2: didn't come across that apparently from what I can understand he they, he was they were sitting out there for a while I think at one point I could be wrong about this but he thought they were out there for about four hours I don't know if did you read that no I didn't come across four hours because he did say uh, there was points where people actually because it was a lover's lane, people had driven by and yes, people you know, had driven and by. seen him and didn't stop to help them. I don't know if it's the same, if the movie was bang on with how they portrayed it, but, you know, when the police find him, he's like sitting outside the car. He's just sitting on the ground.
0: I'm learning to be a bit careful about the movie because, again, it's all from what's in Graysmith's head. That's a total point of view of, Gra- of Robert Graysmith. And, who, and Robert
1: Graysmith is – You'll leaving. find out. You'll okay. find out. Okay.
2: Exactly, Riley, because I have seen a lot of interviews with people that reference the two books. It was two books that Graysmith wrote. Two books, wrote.
0: yeah. I'll be mentioning them.
2: Yeah, and they do bring up the fact that, you know, what I said is not what he says in the book.
0: Very much so. You're watching, you you watched, um, uh, an important documentary, which I'll be mentioning later. But anyway, it's called This is the Zodiac Speaking. Yes. Great documentary. You watched that. Yes, you did. And that's the documentary where everyone is interviewed, all the original witnesses. Okay. It's so good. It's brilliant. On August the 1st, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner, and the Vallejo Times Herald each received a letter addressed to the editor. The letters were written by hand and contained details about the murder, the murder in question, the Majot murder, the Majo and Farron attack. The letters were all almost identical. Each of them was signed with a symbol, a circle with a cross through it. Just think of a target through a gun. It looked like that. The letters also contained three different sections of a cryptogram consisting of 408 symbols. And that's why it's referred to as Z408. You're going to hear me a lot of times referring to Z408. Z for Zodiac 408 for the number of symbols in the cryptogram. Each section of the cryptogram is eight lines long, and each line contains 17 symbols. The author of the letters demanded that these be printed on the front pages of the three respective newspapers, or he would, and I quote, cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night then moving on to kill again until I end with a dozen people over the weekend he stated that if the codes were all successfully cracked his identity would be revealed now the San Francisco Chronicle published the cryptogram on page 4 not on the front page as they'd been instructed, with a quote from the Vallejo police chief stating that they could not confirm that the letter had actually come from the killer. Then, on August the 4th, a second letter is received, and this one started with the now famous phrase, this is the Zodiac speaking. This letter contained detailed information about the murders that only the killer would know. Okay, we good? We're good. Mm-hmm. Okay. On August the 8th, a married couple named Donald and Betty Hardin in Salinas, California, cracked that first code, said 480, in 20 hours. They were teachers and amateur cryptologists. They actually solved the cryptogram at their kitchen table. The solution to that cryptogram is called a cipher. And they had solved this particular puzzle by first identifying what are known as cribs. So what you do is you look for words that you know will be used in the cryptogram, and those are cribs. And once you've solved one of those, it's sort of the key to the universe. It will eventually lead you to unlock the entire cryptogram. So, Aren't
2: aren't
1: they looking for, like, specific letters to start those cribs? Well, cribs are words
0: or phrases that you assume will appear in a message, such as deer right okay repeat yeah so they realized that they were looking at what is known as a homophonic substitution cipher which means that one letter is replaced by another Hmm. so betty had decided correctly that the message must begin with the word i she also guessed that the word kill or killing must also be somewhere buried in the message and she was 100 percent correct the first phrase in the message was indeed I like killing and that led them to solve the entire Z48 cryptogram, which reads as follows verbatim. Now there is bad grammar because he used bad grammar, so don't blame it on me. He says, I like killing because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill something gives me the most thrilling experience it is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl the best part of it is when i die i will be reborn in paradise and those i have killed will become my slaves i will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for the afterlife that's what it said now they could not decipher the last 18 letters of the cryptogram, and those remain unsolved to this day. Thoughts on that? Can
1: I just ask something here? Absolutely. Why couldn't they figure out the last 18 if they had figured out the sequencing, the code, what, or they, is he using different characters? He's also
0: using symbols. There were symbols used in the letter, and they couldn't figure out the last 18. What those last ones were. They could not figure it out. And something to keep in mind, I'm kind of giving something away that's coming up later in the pod. But to answer your question, he spelled things badly. Mm. He fucked it up a couple of times. And that's one of the reasons it took them so long to solve some of the ciphers.
2: So that's what I was just going to ask you. Because I know one of the words uh, that he messed up a couple of times was paradise. Spelled it with a C. Exactly. Like, so, like a
0: pair of dice. Paradise. Yeah.
2: What I was wondering, do you think that's intentional. uh, So it would take longer to solve because you've seen that with other, uh, with other serial killers as well. I know Jack the Ripper, you know, the letters he used to send, they had a lot of grammatical errors. Of course, you have to think of the time frame in the education system back then, but still at this time it, I don't know if I've always looked at it and I've never really seen anything that said, uh, you know, theories about whether or not it was intentional.
0: A lot of people have examined the letters for that very reason to see if there was some kind of intentional error. That was actually some kind of key to the cryptogram perhaps his errors were random they don't think that it was actually anything other than him making mistakes he wasn't a good
1: writer so he's not necessarily the genius that he thought he was no he
0: thinks he's extremely eloquent and he's not Mm -hmm. i mean what did i just read you you know like who would say something like that and then say it is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl like that's super colloquial
2: so this is all still before profiling, like FBI-type profiling and that sort of thing. So it's interesting, though, because that that would be a clue in terms of social class, status, education. I mean, that's that's going to point you in a certain direction if somebody's making grammatical mistakes like that. So absolutely it's interesting. And
1: also age, too, like getting your rocks off. That probably would put them in a certain age demographic as well. Well, I remember,
0: it's the 60s. Yeah, but a 60-year-old is probably not going to say that. No, that's true. Now it's time for probably the most famous of his crimes. September 27th, 1969, we're at Lake Berryessa. And this is near Napa, the famous Napa region. 22-year-old Cecilia Shepard and 20-year-old Brian Hartnell are together. They're having a picnic on the shores of Lake Berryessa. It's not actually a lake, by the way. It's a reservoir. There's a lot of those in California. But anyway, they call it Lake Berryessa. They've selected a very picturesque peninsula with three large oak trees on it that has an absolutely stunning view of the lake. I've seen many images of it. It's very beautiful. They were both college students and they had dated a few years earlier and had remained fast friends. Now Brian had run into Cecilia earlier that day in the cafeteria at Pacific Union College and they decided because they had the time to spend the day together and go into San Francisco. However, After stopping briefly at a rummage sale, they realized that they wouldn't have time to make it to the city and back. So they decided they would visit Lake Berryessa instead. And that's what they did. After parking the car, they had laid down a picnic blanket. And after a while, Cecilia becomes distracted and she turns to Brian and whispers, there's a man nearby. Cecilia then observes that the man has hidden himself behind a nearby tree when he notices that Cecilia is looking in his direction. Brian says ah, it's probably okay he's probably just taking a piss behind the tree. But then the man moves out of his hiding place. He's now wearing a hood with eye holes. It looks a lot like picture a medieval executioner's hood but the hood goes a lot longer than executioners would. It has a bib attached to it upon which has been drawn very well and very carefully the circle and cross symbol, which we now know as the signature of the Zodiac. He's wearing gloves and he's wearing sunglasses, and he's carrying both a gun and a very long knife. At his belt are pre-cut sections of plastic rope. It's the kind of rope that is used for clotheslines specifically. So you'd get it at a hardware store, but it's clothesline rope. It's plastic rope. Cecilia then shouts to Brian, Oh my God, he's got a gun. He approaches them and tells them that he is an escaped convict who just wants to rob them and steal their car. He states that he killed a guard when escaping from prison and that he wants to just get to Mexico. He then instructs Cecilia to tie Brian up. When she finishes that, he tightens the knots and then ties her up. He instructs them both to lie on their stomachs so that he can then tie their feet. And he does so, but he hog ties them. So, you know what I'm talking about when I say that. So once that's done, he then stabs Brian six times in rapid succession. Cecilia freaks out and panics. She begins to scream and tries to actually roll away and she makes it quite a distance. The assailant then stabs her as she struggles to escape. When the attack is over, he then walks calmly away. Brian and Cecilia, oh my God, at this part, are both still alive. Brian then speaks with Cecilia. She's crying and terrified and in a great deal of pain. Brian attempts to loosen Cecilia's hands with his teeth. And he does actually manage to free one of her hands with the sheer power of just prying it off with his teeth. Imagine that with the amount of
1: pain he must be in as well. Losing strength. He said she was
0: terrified. He said she was crying, saying stuff like, I don't want to die. Mm -hmm. She was completely traumatized. Brian begins to call for help, screaming at the top of his lungs. He's still able to do so. A fisherman is out on the lake. He's passing by in a boat. He hears the cries for help. He doesn't see anything. He sees that there's kids there, but he can't really tell what's happened, but he decides he's going to do the wise thing. And he notifies the authorities once he reaches shore. None of this is really given to you in the Zodiac movie. That's why I say it's just one perspective. This crime has got way more to it than what you saw in the movie. Cecilia then manages to make her way to Brian and begins to work on the knots that are binding his hands together. And she loosens them through her pain enough that Brian manages to free his hands and he then unties them both. So they're both free. They're both very, very weak at this point from blood loss. Cecilia can't really move, but Brian is able to do so, but he has to rest every five feet or so because he starts to feel faint. So he walks about five feet and then sort of crouches down because he's going to pass out from blood loss. He manages to make it to a utility road and he sees that a vehicle is approaching. Thank God. He waves at it frantically and it stops. It is actually the police oh. who are searching for them after receiving the call from the fishermen. Napa County Detective Sergeant John Robertson could not believe that Brian had managed to make it as far as he could, given the amount of blood loss that had occurred without losing consciousness. Where was he stabbed? In the back five times. Yeah. And where was she stabbed in the same... All over the place. All over the place. Yeah. She was rolling. And fighting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: he he believed that the reason he survived is because he stayed stationary. Yeah, right. Right, like he just basically he said the the stabbing was in such quick su- succession that he it just kind of happened very quick, whereas she had to witness him getting stabbed and that obviously rose her level of panic. And then she started rolling all over the place. So she was getting stabbed all over. Which is never depicted.
0: None of this is ever depicted in the reenactments of this crime. Cause there's a lot of them that have been done and no one ever depicts the full length of what happened. They show them getting stabbed and then it kind of just stops. But it was a whole half hour after that of trauma. Because it took her about ten minutes to get his bonds undone. Like if you hear him interviewed, it took a while. And her rolling, she
2: rolled far. Like she rolled about thirty feet away from him. Going on the movie, the that's the the only reenactment I've seen of it uh, is in the the Fincher movie. But I just remember that was for me the hardest one to watch because it seemed so graphic. Yeah. And I I was. At that point, I was ready for it to, to the edit to go to a different scene because I'm like, I don't want to see any more of this. It was so disturbing. I
0: kind of wish, though, they had because I kind of wish they had showed what a hero Brian really was. Well, they both were.
2: Yes, I agree.
0: Just to fight that hard. And he, oh, okay, I don't want to give any more weight. Let me continue. But but rather, I would say for
1: both of them, not just him, she fought. She didn't give up. She didn't, she, even her act of rolling away may have stalled him. Maybe that contributed
0: to the outcome I don't remember what happened well he was um, very consoling to her he helped talk her down yeah and get her you know and comfort her he was he's a lovely man if you see him his interview which I recommend you do it he's just a fucking lovely guy so he survived yeah they, in the movie they actually in that in that thing um, uh, this is the Zodiac speaking in that documentary they do this thing which I really hate when they do in documentaries but they bring him to the scene of the crime yes oh. I was gonna talk about that yeah they did and he walks around and says this is where this and this—I don't like when they do that. I don't think it's fair, but whatever. I guess he got paid
2: because it, when you watch him talk about it, he's so. Whereas with with Michael, you can see the trauma written all over him. Is that right? Mm-hmm. His name yeah. is Michael Maggio. Yes, the trauma is abundantly clear. Like it's written all over his his affect, his, his you know his cadence, the way he moves, mm. his body language, everything. You can just tell that it changed him completely whereas brian just seems like when he talks about it it's not a disconnect but it's almost like it's someone else talking about what happened to him as opposed to this is what happened to me he's so calm and well adjusted and he just uh, so i don't want to say unemotional but he he just he's he keeps his emotions very much in check he's very pragmatic in his descriptions
0: yeah if you see him though Right after the crime, he is equally so being interviewed in bed. I know. They interview him in the hospital. He's got these big glasses on. And when they interview him in bed, he's equally composed. He just, I think that's probably just his nature. Because do you remember? I, I didn't mention this in the podcast because I don't think it's necessary, but he actually tried to reason with the killer saying that he was at that time in university studying sociology. Yeah. And he was wondering if he could be of aid to the killer. Like, can I help you? Can I mm. is there anything I could do to
2: help you through this? He offered to write him a check. That's right. Because yeah. he only had seventy-five cents in his pocket. You know, he wanted to help the guy. He genuinely was interested in going, Clearly you're standing in front of me with a wearing a dickey and a hood with a crosshairs target symbol on it. Mm. Uh, and you have a gun and a knife. So you're You're not a normal person, but he he was trying to get inside his head, reason with the guy, but he seemed like he genuinely was concerned about the man's well-being and wanted to help him. I think
0: he is, because I know a lot of people like him. I think he is a bread-in-the-bone academic type. He reminds me a bit of my father. Very right brain very organized, very... He keeps it together. Like, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have. I don't think any of us would have, because we're actors and we're just you know we lead with the heart Mm. but it was yeah he's just a very together guy i was gonna say
1: too that i i I wonder then if that approach and he was able to get to that place where he was in his zone helped him you know save his life too just his approach with the zodiac and then what happened afterwards even from a physiological standpoint if he's staying calm that's keeping his blood flow
0: exactly Yeah. The best thing you can do when you've been attacked to sustain any kind of uh, wound that's giving you blood loss is to slow your heart down. Mm -hmm. Also, I was going to tell you, Mm -hmm. Sean, if you're going to get stabbed, the best place you can get stabbed is in the back. Because it usually just punctures your lungs. People don't know where they're aiming. So they generally, I looked, <laughs> this was in one of the things I read about, but they'll generally just puncture your lungs. And so you'll have a collapsed lung and they can fix that. But the front ones are bad because you can get the, the, the hearts exposed there yeah. and the internal organs. So the best place you can get stabbed is in the back because people always go high when they stab in the back. They never stab low. So
1: t- the takeaway for the good listener, if you're going to stab someone, stab them in the front.
0: If you only see the back, go low. Yeah, go low. Get the kidneys. Get the liver. Get the spleen.
2: Actually, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say quickly that, uh, sorry that you know you also have to keep in mind part of the calmness might have come from the fact that the time period. You know, it's not like this is all over the news and social media at this point, right? I mean, that nobody really knows about the zodiac at this point. I'm about to talk about that too. Okay, well, that's a nice little feed into it for it. Good segue, Sean.
0: Well done, bravo. All right, so uh, I said, and I'll repeat it, Napa County Detective Sergeant John Robertson couldn't believe that Brian had survived the ordeal and had managed to walk as far as he did without passing out. Given that there's only one access road to where they were, and it was quite a gravelly, park-like kind of road, it's very likely that the police on their way to the crime passed the Zodiac. It's almost 100% certain that they passed him on their way. Uh, they were all questioned. None could remember a vehicle about an hour after the murder the police receive the following phone call the murder hold on did did she die we'll get to that okay Well, you just said murder she died oh yeah she didn't make it about one hour after the crime the police receive the following phone call i want to report a murder no a double murder they're two miles north of park headquarters they were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Now the officer who was relieving the switchboard operator on her lunch break mistakenly believes that he is talking to someone reporting the attack. And this is an officer, so he's not trained as a switchboard operator. He was just there by accident because he would always, it was the junior officer in the department would always take over for the switchboard operator when she'd go on lunch. So he then asks the caller, Where are you now? And the caller then responds, I'm the one who did it. The officer then hears a clatter as the caller drops the phone, leaving it to dangle from its cord. So the police send out a message that the caller has left the phone off the hook. A local reporter hears that message and begins to drive around the Napa area, trying to locate the phone in question he finally spots it dangling from its cord in a public phone booth next to a car wash located uh, just a few blocks away from the police department. And thank God it was a reporter because without touching the phone, he yells into the receiver, can you hear me? Can you hear me? And that officer who had remained on the line does indeed hear him. Mm. And that's how they located the spot where the Zodiac made the call from. Mm. So there was no call tracing back then. That's no. how they figured it out. So that's kind of amazing. And kudos to that reporter who by chance spotted that phone dangling from the receiver, went over and yelled, hey, can you hear me? And the officer who was still on the other end said, yes, I can, and that's how they knew where he was. I love that. That's like, that's, the, cool. that's grassroots detective work right there. Mm-hmm. When police arrive at the crime scene, Cecilia is lying in a fetal position at the base of an oak tree. She's been wrapped in a blanket she's crying and having difficulty speaking but she's actually able to describe in detail what had occurred oh and she describes the killer as follows a white male approximately six feet tall he was overweight maybe about 200 pounds he had brown hair and was wearing glasses it's not often reported that cecilia was conscious and was able to provide a description it's left out of a lot Of reports on this case and that information actually didn't make it into the original police report Cecilia was in a coma by the time she reached the hospital and she never regained consciousness she died of her injuries and Brian survived the six stab wounds that were inflicted to his back his description of the killer is five eight to about six feet tall heavy build he put him at around 200 to 250 pounds Dark brown hair was visible through the holes in the mask, so they could actually see that his hair was poking out and they identified it as brown. He described the killer's voice as very low and very robotic and measured, very distinct. He didn't speak like everybody does. He kind of spoke in a very monotone kind of way. On the side of Brian's car, police found a message written in marker. It began with the now familiar Zodiac symbol. The plus sign with the circle. Mm-hmm. This was followed by 1220 68, 7469, and September 27th, 69 630. And those are the dates of the three attacks that I've mentioned so far. And the message ended with a single phrase by knife. Oh, God, I find that chilling. From the site, they also retrieved a footprint. It was a size 10.5 wing walker boot now this is a very specific kind of footwear it's almost always used by military personnel and they were used by aircraft maintenance people because they feature a static free sole so that there would be no static electricity sent into the aircraft which can be potentially very dangerous and it's actually used to walk on the wings and on the body of aircraft so the question is If he intended to kill his victims, why wear a mask? Mm. That's a big question associated with this crime that's really never been answered. It doesn't make any sense to them. And they believe that he just wanted to look like a terrifying figure.
1: He he could have easily killed them, you know, not leave it to chance. Whether or not his stab wounds connected, stab them in the head, cut their throat, shoot them. Well, he did shoot the, the, the first two groups. With the last, the, la- the last couple, exactly,
2: yeah. The gun, the fact that he had a gun, and then he, because he was about to leave. I don't want to jump ahead here, so tell me if I am. But he was, he was about to leave, and then he came back. Brian claims he saw, he thought he was leaving, and then he saw a flash of the knife, and the next thing he knew, he was getting stabbed. Because at one point, Brian asked him if the gun was loaded, right? Yeah, they had a, a, quite a lengthy conversation. Yeah, he he said because uh, a lot of times people would back then, want to hold people up, or if they were committing crimes with guns, they wouldn't load the gun in case something went wrong, because mm-hmm. obviously if something did go wrong and there was a gun involved, it's going to up the amount of time if you get charged that you're going to spend in prison. So uh, they wouldn't load the gun. So he actually asked him, is the gun loaded? And he made a point of bending over and showing him the clip was actually full. Right. So he could have just shot them both right there and... It's yeah, it's interesting, the brutality of it, just because he had a fully loaded gun and he chose to stab them.
1: And Riley, are you suggesting that the first two were were also perhaps more for show than for actual
0: murder? Everything he did was for show. It's all about that. It's all about spectacle. He wanted he wanted to be a star. He wanted to be, like, notorious. That's what he wanted. I'm wondering, too, because I came across this when I was researching the psychology of this crime, if maybe he wanted a more visceral experience. Maybe he found that the gun just didn't do it. And a lot of serial killers don't use guns because of that very reason. They want the visceral connection with the crime that you that it's actually the force of your body responsible for a person dying. And so perhaps he just wasn't getting... It was just wasn't getting him off. You know what I mean?
2: Well, you do see in a lot of serial killers, there there's a confidence and boldness that comes with it with each crime. And you do see that with this one, too. Because if you look at the first one, quick with guns, very remote places at nighttime. Uh, whereas this, yes, it was remote. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this was in September. It was during the day. It was by a college. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the thing, is it was a bit remote, but it was a popular area. And I guess it wasn't as busy because kids had gone back to school, but it's in the middle of the day. I know. you know, So you can see him getting more, advent- I don't know if adventurous is the right word, bold. Yeah, very you bold. Know, he's, yeah. he's chasing something, and I think you're right. I think the thing about the gun and then switching to the, uh, the knife during the day taking his time because apparently if i'm not mistaken her testimony she cecilia had said that like he was he was scoping them out like almost stalking them for quite a while and he kept when she first saw him behind the tree
0: and he vanished he didn't appear again for a while and they thought he was gone Mm -hmm. and when he started walking towards him he actually put his his hood on she could see him finishing the process of putting the hood on so he didn't put it on behind the tree he put it on as he was walking towards them i'm gonna say this I don't
1: know if it's because we are different now because of media, the things we've been exposed to with serial killers and just film, television. But if I saw someone stalking me and my girlfriend, there's no way I'd be relaxed and let my guard down. In fact, I'd probably be getting up and getting into my car. They were far from the
0: car, first of all.
1: Yeah, I, but I would be, exactly, I would be, I would be very wary. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, not, this is not a condemnation of what they did, but rather just a maybe more telling of the times that people were maybe more trusting back then. Of
0: course. Then,
1: like, oh, there's just some weirdo behind the tree with a hood. I'm going off
0: topic here, but I have to say this. Do you know that child abduction is not really a thing? It's not really a thing. It's very rare. It's one of the yeah. most rare crimes in the world yet. It's usually, it's usually apparent. Yet we have been turned into a society that's extraordinarily paranoid about child mm-hmm. abduction, which almost never mm-hmm. happens through the media. We've become that way. We've been trained to be that way. And it's Yeah, it ridiculous. happens, but it,
1: it happens at, at a very, very, I mean, the chances are so minute. Minute? Minute? Yeah, minute, minute. Oh, yeah. minute bull. Yeah, But if you look at
0: the media, I would be led to believe that there are dozens of children being abducted off the streets of North America every friggin' day.
1: Sean, do you remember this in the 80s? I remember there was a movie, like a a made-for-TV movie about a kid who was stolen
2: and raised by a couple. Yes. So I'm thinking of two movies because... Being a child of the 80s, two movies that essentially traumatized you about oh, yeah. abducted children. Yeah. The one, and I remember watching it, is Adam, it was called, yes, which that's was it. Uh, about. Uh, no, that's a different one because Adam and I know the movie. I know the movie you're talking about, and I'll tell you about that in a second, um, but Adam was the one with uh, John Walsh, who ended up doing America's Most Wanted. That's the reason he got on it, because his son oh, was yes, kidnapped yes, yes. And, yeah. and murdered. But that, I remember watching that television movie as a kid, and it was Daniel J. Travanti from uh, from Hill Street Blues and Joe Beth Williams, I and their loved son was- I him. Yeah. He should have had a better career. Uh, he had a meltdown on stage, actually. Stage, something went wrong, but that's a whole other, we'll get sidetracked again. So- huh. That movie traumatized me, but the movie you're talking about, Dan, is a movie called Without a Trace uh, with Kate Nelligan and Judd Hirsch. And that was based on the, uh, what was the name of that kid that went missing in New York? Eton Pats or something like that. It was a very famous case in the, I may have the wrong name. I know the first name was Etan. But he went missing. He just disappeared out of New York. And that was just solved, I think, five years ago. they Really? Finally, yeah, they finally found uh, a guy admitted it. yeah it did He, it. he it murdered a, him? Uh, yeah, he basically, the kid was on the way to school and he grabbed him at a convenience store. So that, and, that yeah.
1: sat... I'm, And I'm sure it had the same impact on you then too, just like Jaws did with me in any body of water where I couldn't see the bottom. Uh, it terrified me. I was always on the lookout as a kid uh, for that. Of course you of were, crap. because
0: we've been manipulated to be that way. You know what else I was going to say is like, never take candy from a stranger. The whole fear of Halloween. that all Trace that all back to one crime where a father killed his own son with a cyanide yeah. pixie sticks because he wanted the damn insurance. It had nothing to do with killing random strangers. It was... It just was blown up. or like the razor blades and the apple. Yeah, but everything became super elevated. And, you know, we all became fearful for really no Mm -hmm. reason.
1: And has impacted us as
0: parents, too. Okay, guys, um, I'm going to rein you in because I've got one more crime I want to get through. And then we're going to talk about other details in part two. October the 11th, 1969, we're in San Francisco, the beautiful city of San Francisco. It's about 10 p.m. Cab driver named Paul Stein picks up a fare in front of the very famous St. Francis Hotel, which I've actually stayed in. The passenger had asked to be taken to Pacific Heights. Now, if you don't know a lot about San Francisco, you know, Pacific Heights is an affluent neighborhood. It's where money is. It's about 10 minutes away from the St. Francis Hotel. The passenger instructs Stein to stop at the intersection of Washington and Cherry Streets. Stein's does so. The passenger then takes out a 9mm gun and shoots Stein once in the head. After doing this, he takes Stein's keys and wallet and leaves the vehicle. Now, there's a teenage girl in a house just across the street from that intersection. She sees a man exit the cab Mm -hmm. and then take a cloth and wipe down the outside of the door that he has just opened. He then heads north in the direction of a large park known as the Presidio. The Presidio is a super well-known landmark in San Francisco. So the girl's mother, at her insistence, immediately calls the police. There were actually three witnesses who were able to get a very clear look at the man as he exited the cab and walk away. And the witnesses, including the small girl, describe him as follows. A white male. 25 to 30 years of age, approximately five feet, nine inches. He had a stocky build, a reddish brown crew cut, and heavy rimmed glasses. Now, this time, because it's the city, the police are able to get to the scene in a matter of minutes. Stein is clearly deceased. If you've seen photographs of the crime scene, there ain't no doubt he's gone. In the confusion that ensues, the police dispatcher mistakenly identifies the suspect as an NMA, which means Negro Male Adult. And this error would prove to be monumental. A police car with two officers inside, named Donald Fook and Eric Zelms, are driving around trying to find the suspects, and they come across a man walking on nearby Jackson Street. He's not black. So they don't consider him to be a suspect. This is weird because this is where accounts diverge. Folks who you can see interviewed is adamant that they never stopped the man and never had a conversation. But almost everybody else claims they did. Uh, In the version that is the most popular, the officers stop and question the man, asking if he has seen anything odd or anyone odd. The man claims that he saw a suspicious figure running in the direction of the Presidio, the park. The officers then thank him and they move off. They drive off. They describe the man that they saw as follows. He's wearing a three-quarter length jacket with elastic on the waist and cuffs. He had a crew cut so they corroborated the uh, witness testimony he was barrel-chested so he's a big guy and he was wearing rust-colored pleated pants or which were unusual for that time and he was wearing industrial type boots which were tan in color when i first heard the rust-colored pleated pants i thought well it was dan Lashwell. hey <laughs> police at the crime scene immediately correct the description once they speak with witnesses and realize that the suspect is in fact white and that an error has been made now there's a lot to unpack here because the first conclusion they yeah. jumped to right the first conclusion they jumped to is negro male adult who, but who who jumped to that conclusion the dispatcher? the dispatcher and the police they never bothered to verify that he was white at the beginning so they heard black cl- probably clothing and just immediately went for numbers. it yeah now zodiac's encounter by the time that they have corrected the bulletin that's going out over all the radios Fawkes and Zelms have already run into this guy and driven away. We interrupt this podcast to bring you an important announcement. Due to a technical mishap, the remainder of Dan's audio does not exist. Therefore, in order to preserve the integrity of the narrative, I will attempt to fill in Dan's dialogue. Please note that I have made every attempt to replicate Dan's speaking voice and guess what Dan might have been saying at each given moment. Thank you for your understanding and enjoy the rest of the show. Now, I think Fuchs, I said Fuchs, Fuchs, I think Fuchs, because I've seen him interviewed, is trying to cover his ass. I think he's profoundly embarrassed by what happened. And I think he realizes that even if it didn't match the description, they should have done a more thorough job. And they didn't. Now, most people believe that that was the Zodiac. However, it's important to note that they're very certain that he had no visible blood on his clothing. And the way that Steins was shot would have had, inc- there was in the car an incredible blood splatter. But a lot of other people say he just turned his coat inside out. Like they think he might have had a coat that was easily, that was made to turn inside out. So there's lots of reasons why he wouldn't have had blood splatter. Maybe he just planned for it. I once had a coat that you could turn inside out.
2: Yeah, and that's, I think, based on... And that, again, the guy saying what he said and what happened is different than what's reported in the book. They just kind of glance over it in the movie. But, yeah, the guy did say he wished his partner... Because only one of them, I believe, is still alive. Yeah,
0: folks, Zellman's dad.
2: Yeah, and... And he said that he wished the other guy was alive so he could corroborate everything that he's, he's saying. But the responding officer is pretty sure that Fuchs is full of shit. And
0: Zelms never said that they drove by.
2: Zelms never stated that. Stated what? What did he state? I don't know. That he stopped him. And he said that his, again, going back to the Michael Maggio guy, his stories changed quite a bit over the year. Apparently it changed from the night what they told them, and then they had to do, I can't remember what they called it, a strike or something. It was an official statement and things have changed uh, from the time. But yeah, he uh, he changed his story quite a bit. And I totally agree with Riley. I think a lot of it just comes from absolute embarrassment. Well, who
0: wants to be known as the guy who let the Zodiac go? I understand the motivation.
2: No, I understand too. And again, it all comes back to and you're gonna to touch on this I'm sure is just it's it wasn't so widely reported that everybody was on the because it was happening in so many different it places. was a different
0: world first of all we didn't have we didn't have the knowledge of serial killers like we do now it would already have been flagged mm. as that there would have been a massive manhunt going on it was just police agencies worked in silos then there wasn't the level mm. of cooperation that there is now like jur- jurisdiction was extraordinarily important and that was another other problem with this crime, San Francisco wasn't working on this crime. They didn't really, it wasn't exactly. on their radar. It was a VAO crime at that point.
2: And that's one thing I know you've touched on the the zodiac thing, certain things the way it's uh, the way it's presented because it is the Graysmith novel is the the source material. But one thing I thought they did very very well in that movie was show that demonstrate the lack of communication between the police forces mm-hmm. and even and even the and that got better, right? Yeah, I mean they do paint Graysmith as a guy who kind of is kind of goes yeah. And the media was a big pan. the The media was involved in that election because of, but yeah, Riley's going to probably. Talk.
0: So, in a later letter that was written about the crime, Zodiac stated, two cops pulled a goof about three minutes after I left the cab. I was walking down the hill when this cop pulled up, and one of them called me over and asked if I saw anyone acting suspicious or strange in the last five to ten minutes, and I said yes." There was this man who was running by waving a gun and the cops peeled rubber and went around the corner as I directed them. And I disappeared into the park a block and a half away, never to be seen again. So the Zodiac himself is saying that Fuchs is lying. So I think we can say that uh, they stopped him and he's just really embarrassed. And you can read that letter. You can read that letter online. So he was right there within the grasp. Now, a sketch was prepared based on all of the descriptions provided. And that's the most famous image of the killer. That's the one you're going to see everywhere with the glasses and the crew cut. And police also retrieved a bloody fingerprint from the cab. However, in a letter on the crime, Zodiac claims, I was leaving fake clues for the police to run all over town. And that, my gentlemen, is where we're going to leave it for this episode and pick it up again. Oh, no. And, yeah, we're going to have to wait a week. Ha ha, fuck you. I don't want to wait. I'm happy. Dan, life is full of disappointment. Riley is nice. I
2: thoroughly enjoyed that. Can I say one last thing about the Fuchsman? Go ahead. When he saw the sketch, when he finally saw the sketch, he was like, that's the guy, correct? Mm-hmm. He positively identified Yeah, that. and
0: that's the sketch you're going to see all over the internet. That's the one. Part one. That's it.
2: Are we happy? hmm I will say that sketch looks like every IT guy you've oh, ever I worked know, with. I know, I know. Hey, you know what, you guys? I think he looks a
0: lot like the Pope. I wish it was and they'd arrest him and, and then we wouldn't have to hear about him anymore. We now return to Dan's regular recorded dialogue. All right, boys, that's as far as I'm going to go uh, with the Zodiac case for this first of the two-part episode. What do you think? It's great.
2: I love this case, and I love what you've covered so far.
0: It's neat to,
1: having watched the movie, to hear your retelling of the stories and the color you're providing, Sean. You know, And I think I watched the movie in the last six months, so it's still fresh in my head to hear some of the inconsistencies, and but also getting a more fuller picture of what actually happened. So I, I'm really enjoying that. Well,
0: the funny thing is, is I didn't realize until I started to research the case, that the Fincher film is really biased because it's all based on uh, Graysmith's book. He's really taking Graysmith. At his word right it's, it's a it's a bit of an editorial book it's taken some liberties and and as i will uh, prove in part two well not approve but as i will discuss in part two grace graysmith has some very strong opinions about this case about who he he's pretty certain he knows who did it so we'll leave it at that for now do, and do i get an award for not derailing
2: your episode You've been an extremely good boy. Yeah, you've been pretty good. One thing I will say about the movie, and it's kind of related to the movie, is I love the poster. Do you know the poster I'm talking about? Yeah, the poster's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. The poster is... Dan, if you haven't seen the poster, it's this eerie kind of... There's smog or fog on the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's just the way Zodiac is It's such... The poster is fantastic. I love the poster. Oh, I
1: remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good poster.
2: Okay, Dan, business... Business,
1: Uh, Folks, if you enjoy listening to The Weird, first of all, thank you so much for following us. Uh, This is part of our 50th episode, Extravaganza Bonanza. And uh, we would just like to thank everybody for uh, tagging along on this ride. If you enjoy what you're listening to, please feel free to share the word of The Weird with your friends, your co-workers, uh, perhaps someone in an aisle, uh, in a clothing store, a Gap, Licenza, wherever you really dated yourself by saying a clothing store the gap i just bought my son some shorts from the gap a few weeks ago i did too actually the gap is good for us over 40 boys not me my son i bought shorts for my son but i have to say the gap is a go-to place for me because it's good for our age. sure for certain things right if you uh to get to get us back on track because you know i thought maybe my good behavior rubbed off on you tonight but apparently not yeah to get us back on track if uh, you're enjoying us you can rate us on itunes i don't know other platforms allow you to rate maybe there's so many of them out there Uh, but certainly just uh, share the word of the weird and uh, thank you very much for listening We
0: love you, and join us next week for part two of this two-parter on The Zodiac. So, good night, Sean.
2: Good night, Riley. Good night, Dan. Good night,
0: Dan. Good night, everybody. My name is Dan Lajoie. I like birds and sandwiches with cheese in them. Yesterday, I went out for a walk, and I found a large pointy stick. I stuck it in the ground. I'm very clever.